Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode concludes the week focused on parts three and four of season three. So this will be my archive of previous work, uh, both on these episodes individually and together. And then at the end, I'm going to play a clip from the opening of the next episode, part five, and uh, then describe what we see in uh, fairly extensive detail, as I now realize looking at what I've written down for it. But we'll get there in a bit. First, let's talk about how I first received this show. Watching them on streaming, they were distributed as separate episodes. So first I watched part three, wrote my response. Then I watched part four and wrote that response. Several weeks ago, revisiting Mark Frost's book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, I came across a reference to the Brothers Grimm, who I've since learned drew inspiration for their stories from real events in their own dark woods. That's a quote from the Mark Frost book. Clearly this was a throwaway line, but it nonetheless got me dreaming of some sort of Twin Peaks fairy tale crossover. And in a way, that's what we got in this episode. Cooper, sent hurtling through outer and inner space by the armed tree doppelganger, I think, arrives outside of a tower surrounded by tumultuous seas, draped in a purple haze. Inside the tower he finds a woman with her eyes stitched shut, sitting in front of a fire as an ominous force bangs on the door of the wa- or the wall of this room. She seems to be locked in here by a monster, a monster who must not be allowed to meet the visiting stranger. This is a classic fairy tale scenario. Soaked in Lynch's terrifying vision, a cross between the nowhere world of Eraserhead and the dreamy rhythms of his digital work. The action is captured through a series of flickers, jolting the scene back and forth, a very Guy Madden effect, while animalistic noises replace dialogue. Saturated by a vivid, nightmarish texture, this all seems alarmingly new. Nothing in Twin Peaks history, and little in Lynch's, can prepare us for it. Yet it's vaguely familiar, calling forth an understanding from the depths of our subconscious. The woman takes Cooper through an opening in the ceiling, which reveals that this vast world he glimpsed exists inside a small cube floating in the stars. She pulls a lever, appears to electrocute herself, and falls into the cosmos. A sacrifice has been made to save Cooper, but he doesn't understand how or why. Also from 2017, my uh, weekly, my original weekly response to part four, One thought occurred to me while watching these intersecting stories. What if Dougie doesn't exist in the same universe as Evil Cooper? What if when Cooper was thwarted in his re-entry, he was diverted not just to another location, but another dimension? Will Cooper as Dougie make his way back to Twin Peaks, only to find a completely different town than we visited so far? Or, if he does, will that open the question of whether everything we've seen of Twin Peaks in these four episodes is even itself part of a continuous reality? This reminds me of one of the more outlandish theories I dug up on the old alt.twinpeaks forum in 1990, when one viewer suggested, only half-jokingly, that we were not watching scenes in strict continuity, but cutting between, say, a universe in which Leo killed Laura and a universe in which he didn't. The conceit seems to be too elaborate and heady for Lynch's intuitive, ambiguous style, but not necessarily for Frost Penchom for tricky puzzles. As far back as when the new series was announced, people have been predicting some sort of interdimensional alternate reality arrangement. This may be way too clever by half, but we've reached the point where the series is inviting us to consider such possibilities, much as they will make many pox on TV predicting critics, perhaps justly, grind their teeth. We probably won't have any confirmation either way for several more episodes. So, in 2020... I created Journey Through Twin Peaks, Chapter 36, The Return, 
discussing season three, and in the episode From Cosmos to Carpet, I talked about parts three and four. Here's a clip from that. As you know, your brother Harry S. Truman is my godfather. This long sequence at the sheriff's station is a notable exception in this two-hour stretch. I gotta take a leak so bad my back teeth are floating. That mostly avoids the town in order to focus on the two Coopers. But while we're back in Twin Peaks, this environment is as poignant in its own way as the roadhouse in the premiere. Man, brings back some memories. Between plot, humor, oh, yes. and comfort, this little stretch is pleasant and reassuring. Ooh. But the show is also settling into a drier incarnation of Twin Peaks than we might expect from the moody original or the romantic glamour of Lynch films in the Sweeney years. Home. The big exception, of course, being that trip to the purple world. So that concludes the coverage of parts three and four. Now, part five, we're going to play the opening minute here. So if you haven't seen it yet, you don't, you know, you want to see it for yourself first. Pause here. If you have seen it or don't care, here's the first minute uh, in audio, and then I'm going to describe it. Just drove by, his car's still there. That's Helgene. Is he still inside? Can't tell, but the lights are on in there. Fuck, Gene! This job was supposed to be done yesterday. Are you trying to get me killed? What do you want us to do? We're all over it. Fuck! She's a warrior. Yeah. The episode fades up on an overhead shot of the sprawling Las Vegas cityscape at night. Several tall, blocky buildings and one distant, spindled tower are lit from below, but otherwise, the many and many colored dots of illumination against the black canvas are windows in otherwise dark buildings or street-level neon. In contrast to the more arid Vegas depicted in the series so far, and in accompaniment with the musical choice, there's something almost magnificent and slightly wistful about this presentation. The camera is gliding right to left on an even keel, surveying the vastness of an urban oasis in the desert that nonetheless stretches far into the distance. There's too much to describe here if we were to zoom in on various details, but the overall impression is what we're likeliest to soak in during four seconds of screen time before a long dissolve to another view of the cityscape. This second shot is set at dawn, the sky a dim orange on the horizon line, phasing out into a smudgy yellow and grayish blue. The shape of a mountain juts out on the horizon in the top center of the frame, sloping downward to the right after a couple subtle undulations into rounded peaks, disappearing into the right side of the frame where the sky is still, at its most rightward extremity, pitch black. No sunlight or lightning sky is reflected on the buildings, which fill most of the frame. The bottom three quarters of the image could be cut and pasted from that previous middle of the night shot, with streets and buildings still entirely lit by neon or spotlight, their shapes lost in the blackness of anything that isn't artificially illuminated. 
We're a bit closer to the ground in this shot, though still far enough up to take in the distant sprawl. Certain logos are legible, most prominently the yellow MGM lettering near the bottom of the frame, but also an unmistakable yellow and red McDonald's arch above what appears to be the main strip. I would say this is almost certainly the first sighting of McDonald's in Twin Peaks. The camera movement continues right to left, though this shot barely holds before another long dissolve takes us closer. Now we're coasting along the strip itself, consumed by the overhead neon signs, a yellow outline of a griffin holding a martini glass, above a sign that's helpfully inscribed griffin in white with a blue outline, a tattoo parlor, and immediately overhead, initially filling the frame in a jagged yellow sideways V or boomerang, clutching the vertical red letters of Vegas between its edges. Behind that, revealed as we move under and past the Vegas sign, a blue martini glass, composed of individual smaller and smaller blue outlines, surrounded by blue and yellow rings of beaded lights in a conical shape, and containing a bright red pick through a bright green olive, with its requisite red pit in the middle. As the martini glass outline blinks out, leaving only the cyclone shape of the yellow spiral, a neon advertisement for Bass Beer is revealed in the background. The point of view is bobbing slightly, reinforcing the impression that we are placed inside a car, driving down the strip and staring up at these dazzling lights. Our third dissolve shifts to a static shot of a mostly black frame. In the upper right corner, a sign, itself about two-thirds in the shadow, we can just barely make out the faint outlines of different coloration. It has only a diagonally revealed left edge showing. There's a red circle with two red R's across a diagonal axis against a rough sandy yellow background. Three grinning faces atop upper bodies that are less illuminated stare out at us. A young blonde girl with her arms wrapped around a blonde woman's shoulders, a tan, brown-haired man completing the trio of portraits. We may recognize this cryptic image from an earlier sighting in Part 3, during a bright daytime scene, in which it was revealed to be a promotional billboard for a neighborhood of newly constructed but unsold homes, Rancho Rosa Estates. Only now, over 20 seconds in, are we finally presented with actual flesh-and-blood human beings, the two hitmen from that Part 3 Rancho Rosa scene, still in their car, apparently in the vicinity of the home that Dougie and Jade came out of, though we don't see it. The driver, with his slick black hair, whiskers, and pinky ring, looks weary as he talks to a woman on his cell phone. His passenger, with a thicker goatee and long stringy hair, appears equally resigned. They're dimly illuminated in this night, and out the passenger window we can see, as the camera moves from a medium shot to something closer, a wall parallel to their dark car and another wall jutting out from it, composed of clean, large, light-colored bricks. After another ten seconds or so, we cut to a woman seated at a cluttered desk, clad in black with heavy eye shadow, speaking on a corded landline telephone. A metal cup full of pens, a stapler, a plastic case with a black top full of paper clips, elastic bands, red glasses, perhaps a coffee cup that shapes hard to make out, would appear to be matchbooks or maybe keys, a staple remover on a piece of paper, an ashtray with a few butts, a couple gray and tan stamps, a perching desk lamp, and a brown box with file folders on top cover this wooden surface. Her hand motions are reflected in its shiny facade. A computer screen, perhaps a Dell monitor with open windows against its blue desktop, is partially obscured by the lamp. The woman taps the desk with her black-nailed finger as she argues. A spiral notepad is open before her. Back to the medium shot of the two men in the car. Quick cut to the woman hanging up her phone with both hands. Return to the two men, the driver quickly glancing at the screen of his phone after she hangs up, and then putting it down, the passenger looking over at him and then straight ahead as the driver gazes slightly to his right, probably at nothing in particular. Chewing gum, the driver nods slightly in agreement with his passenger's observation. Returning to the woman, who is staring off screen, again it seems at nothing in particular, the camera begins slowly moving towards her. 
Her fingers play off of one another in a nervous patter, as if desperate for something to clutch. Her thumb even pops up for a moment, and then she turns her head and reaches below the desk, biting her lip as she contemplates whatever she's about to retrieve. Her head swivels back to stare down at the desk before she's lifted anything up, and there, our minute ends. What is she going to do? And there we leave you with the opening minute of Part 5, which will begin in earnest tomorrow. Uh, I will also be publishing the Parts 3 and 4 Illustrated Companion, which has the directory to all of these episodes from the past week, time codes, screenshots illustrating them, uh, magazine covers and news photos and stuff for those uh, for the current events section, uh, detailed character ranks. It's got a lot of fun stuff to dig into, and uh, I'm working on it to hopefully be up by 8 a.m. tomorrow. I may have to put a placeholder in this place because this whole week has been difficult to keep up with, but I'm hoping next week I can start getting ahead with all that stuff. So that's where it all stands. Part five's week begins tomorrow. Uh, you can support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. And you can also uh, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you in the next episode.